Hi, and welcome to the Rostrum Agency Managing Reputational Risk podcast with me, Grant Bather. In this series of podcasts, I'll be discussing crisis and reputation management from a public relations and media perspective. I'll take a look at the definition of a crisis, what it feels like to be engulfed in a media storm, the role of a crisis communications team, and what steps businesses and individuals can take to minimise media exposure around reputational risk. Each episode, I'll be joined by guests who will give their unique insight into managing reputational risk. And of course, I'll give my take from a PR perspective. Having started my career as a journalist before becoming a company spokesperson and PR professional, I've seen all angles of a crisis. So join me and my guests as we delve into the issues that play into managing reputational risk. For today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by lawyer and author of Reputation Matters, How to Protect Your Professional Reputation, Jonathan Code. So Jonathan, how do you define a crisis? I define a crisis as adverse publications which threaten the reputation of your brand, company or high profile individuals. In the role that you do, how, how do you help organisations or individuals that are, that are going through a crisis? Well, the best thing that a crisis um, professional can do is stop the crisis happening. Uh, there are all sorts of ways that that can be done. Now, obviously, if you own an airline and one of your airliners crashes into Buckingham Palace, you know, that it's going to be all over everywhere. But I'm talking about the more sort of commoner garden crises where typically you get an email in from the, the mail on Sunday. Uh, a whole series of allegations are being threatened against you, which are either wholly untrue or they're a mixture of, of true and false and in those circumstances you, you're, the first thing that a PR professional should be thinking about is well how do we stop those being published because once they're in the ether that's it you know that the, the 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 brand or company or individuals are poisoned forever and so the, the best thing is to make sure that that poison doesn't enter the system and so how do they go about that we've been provided with a, a whole series of ways which are designed, mechanisms which are designed to stop false information entering into the public domain. When false information does enter the public domain, it's important to, to remember that it's not only the subject of that false information which is, the, which, is the, which is a victim, but none of us are helped by fake news. You know, it's just, just bad for society. There's a public interest in stopping fake information, fake news or whatever, bad information entering to, into the public domain. Now, what mechanisms have been given to do that? Well, primarily, there are, there's two sorts. There's what, what have been provided by way of regulation, and there's been what's been provided by way of the law. Now, n- nearly all the work that I do uh, for, for corporates, I, I still do celebrities occasionally, but 80% of its corporates. Nearly all of it, I use the regulations that are available. So broadly speaking, there's two. There's the Independent Press Standards Organization, which regulates most of Fleet Street. And there's Ofcom, which regulates all the terrestrial, terrestrial broadcasters. And both of them have codes, which papers and broadcasters are supposed to comply with. Now, noticed from, from your book that you said that the broadcast ones are, are, are more adhered to than, than the print ones and they take it maybe a, a lot more seriously. Would that a fair reflection? It, it really is. I mean, you're speaking to someone, Grant, who has legal out tele- television programmes for 30 years 
And I can absolutely assure you that um, the provisions of the Ofcom code, and when it comes to the BBC, there's also the BBC producer guidelines, are taken very seriously, not least because Ofcom actually has some teeth. Now, in theory, the Independent Press Standards Organisation has teeth. In theory, it can fine up to a million pounds. In theory, it can engage investigations against serial offenders. In practical terms, it is never, ever going to happen. There hasn't been a single investigation by Ipso in the seven odd years it's been in place, and they haven't fined a single penny. But the Independent Press Standards Organization, set up by the press, funded by the press, code written by the press, appointed by the press, and press people on the commission was never going to be independent. But having said that, it is far better than nothing. And when I'm dealing with, with those newspapers that it regulates, I use it all the time. I should add that there are three newspapers that it doesn't regulate. It doesn't regulate The Guardian, doesn't regulate The Independence, and it doesn't regulate The Financial Times, all of whom have their own sort of regulatory system. But Section 1.1 of the Independent Press Standards Organization Code says this. Newspapers and periodicals must take care not to publish inaccurate or misleading uh, material, including pictures, and must not publish headlines uh, which are not supported by the text, at which point we all break out laughing because we all know that's what they do all day and every day. But the, but the point is, Grant, the reason why they do that is because there are not enough people who in our, in our profession write back to a newspaper saying, hang on a sec, this article is wrong. It's either completely wrong or it's wrong in part. It says here in a code that you have written and you are contractually obliged to comply with, that you must therefore not publish it. Now, I don't know how many people, PR professionals listening, actually do that, but that's what I do. And not only then is the law laid down, but importantly, the newspaper knows that you know what their obligations are. Now, otherwise, they're going to assume that you don't. So even the mere fact that you quote their own regulations back to them already gets you onto the front foot. Got you. I, looking through your, your book again, one thing that, that stood out to me is the advice you give on press statements. A journalist will ring up the company or the, you know, the, the PR agency working for that company and say, this is the story that we've got. And it's usually one of the first steps that that. You know, traditionally we would look at and go need to get a reactive statement ready for this whereas that might not be the best course of action and I'm sure you know in the, the dealings that you've had over various years there's been cases where statements have been issued and you've gone didn't need to go this far there was there are steps that I could have done beforehand do you think that there are there are not enough PR professionals that, that realize there is that step before jumping straight to that press statement Ron, I'm so glad you asked that question because it's the single thing that I, if I can get anything else across in the book, that's what I want to communicate. And the point is this. The first thing I would say is never deal with journalists on the phone. When you're being presented with, with damaging, a damaging story, what you need to do is politely say to the journalists, look, thank you. First of all, thank them. Always, I'm always as polite as I possibly can to journalists. I mean, well, I should add that I've spent 30 years defending good quality journalism. You know, I've been an editorial lawyer. I've acted for newspaper, um, newspapers, magazines, broadcasters. I've legaled out films, books, you name it. Yeah. And 
don't get me wrong, we really, really need good quality journalism. Good quality public interest German journalism is essential. What I'm dealing with here is bad quality public interest journalism. That's <laughs> what I'm fighting against. So the first thing is you need to get, so you politely say, look, thank you so much. Look, I'm going to need to take some ask some questions around here. So just to make sure that I'm, I know exactly what it is your, your mind is saying, here's my email address. Can you put it down on an email? Now, 99 times out of 100, the journalist will do that. So the next thing to understand is this. So again, I'm going to put my editorial lawyer hat on. So as an editorial lawyer, what you're doing is you're trying to mitigate risk. So all the journalists have been trained, and I have trained journalists, and will dialogue with the in-house lawyer, and they'll have been taught that what if you're going to say something defamatory about a company or an individual, you need to reach out to them and send to them uh, what the allegations are and get out of them a comment. Now, yeah. why are they doing that? Right. Well, the good journalists are doing it because that's what good journalists do. But the reason why they're doing it is to secure against either an independent press standards um, organisation complaint and or a defamation claim. Let me explain how this works. So for most journalism, the defence they want to run, and I'm sorry, I'll keep the law lecture to the absolute shortest, but it's, it's so <laughs> essential that this is understood. Definitely. So Section 4 of the 2013 Defamation Act creates a defence, which weirdly actually is also being run by Colleen Rooney, as well as the, the truth defence, which says that, that a journalist or newspaper or broadcaster gets a defence if they can establish two things and two things only, that the subject matter of the publication was concerned a matter of public interest, which nine times out of 10 will, will be yes. And secondly, that the journalist or the newspaper reasonably believed that the publication served the public interest. Now, there's case law about that, but one of the essentials that you need to get that defence, which is a get out of jail free card, you'll notice you don't have to prove the allegations are true. They just have to prove that these two public interest elements are present. So what, they, what they'll be trained to do is to send out an email and ask for comment. Right. So let's assume that the, the allegation... Uh, well, let's keep it simple. So it's one allegation and that allegation is untrue. Yeah. What you do if you send a reactive statement is that effectively you give your consent to the publication of that, that, that allegation, that false allegation, just so long as that reactive statement is tacked on at the end. What, of course, you've done by sending the reactive statement is to allow the newspaper tick the box, which gets them the section four defence. Yeah. So what you should be doing is writing back and saying this allegation is wrong. And here's the reasons why it's wrong. It's no good just saying it's wrong. A newspaper is entitled to an explanation why it's wrong, but also to set up an, a, a, a regulatory complaint, because this really goes to the same if it's Ipso or uh, Ofcom, you need to be in a position to say it was wrong and we explain why it was wrong. So what you then should do is to say, and it therefore contravenes section 1.1 of the Ipso code, which incidentally also means, and this is a sort of subtle legal twist, if it 
contravene section one of the Ipso Code, then you're never going to persuade a judge that this was a public interest publication. Because if it doesn't, if it breaches your own code, a code that you have written, incidentally, <laughs> then you're never going to persuade me that you could reasonably believe that this, this um, publication served the public interest. And that is the formula which I, I use all day and every day. And what will then happen, it'll go in, go in front of the in-house lawyer and they'll say, do you know what? We've got, as always, you know, 150% of material for tomorrow's edition or Sunday's edition. Let's not do this one. Yeah. And, the, and I can tell you that that's how it works because I've legal stuff out for 30 years. <laughs> so you look at, you assess risk. You say, okay, we've got an array of stories. Is this low risk or high risk? Okay, so what do we know? One, we've been given good evidence that this story is wrong. Okay, doesn't sound good. Uh, these people know about the Independent Press Standards Organization code, the complaints procedure. Thirdly, they have reminded us, which we know, that they know that if we breach our own code, God forbid we end up in front of a judge, but if we do, we're going to turn up with our trousers around our ankles. Do we want to do this? Answer no. Now, it's been a very long answer, Grant, but let me just add this, that in 30 years of doing corporate reputation management, I have only had to issue proceedings twice, because if you do this job with sufficient confidence, and deafness, it's not necessary. And again, if you'll forgive me being immodest, I'm all Fleet Street know me. I've been dealing with them politely for, for 30 years. I've taken quite a lot of money over most of them. They know I won't lie to them. Most of them know I'm a devout Christian and therefore I would never do that. And what that means is that when they get something from me, they know that I've good reason to believe it's true. Now, also having a relationship with, with, with Fleet Street, particularly, where you're known and liked and trusted also helps because you're not then just, you know, re relying on having a big right hook. You're also yeah, yeah. building on a reputation that you've established with Fleet Street of telling them the truth. And then to go back to your earlier point that you've made, it's about being, being polite. If someone brings something to you, you don't want to be confrontational straight away. It's, you know, thank you for bringing that to my attention and we'll take a look into it. And it's something that I go on with on you know, all of these these podcast chats that I've had, it's all about that timing. So yeah. you're going to say, look, thank you for bringing it to my attention. We're going to take some time to understand the issues and get back to you. As long as you then give them a timeline and say, I'll give you an update in two hours. It might be in two hours time you go back to that journalist and say, look, we haven't quite got to the bottom of it, but we're still, you know, you're still very much on the radar. As long as you keep people updated through the process, they're going to be a lot happier than if you just go radio silent on them. So I think that is really important. It, it, it is. It's a lot of dealing with banks. The thing that they really don't like is not hearing from you. I mean, typically what will happen is that you will be given a deadline. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I reiterate, always be courteous to journalists. It, there's just there's no point. I mean, if I have to have a fight with the newspaper, I will, but only as a last resort. So as you rightly say, always thank you for them for getting in touch with you. Uh, and then if you're given a deadline, now you also raise an important point. Now there's clear um, guidance in both the law and in regulation about deadlines. Now inevitably the, the length of deadline that you're given is a bit of a length of a piece of string question. You know, if you get from a Sunday paper, three pages of 
30 odd allegations, then the amount of time you should be given to respond to those is entirely different to uh, you know an email with one question. Yes. But the, the Independent Press Standards Organization Code doesn't actually stipulate that reasonable no notice should be given, but it's implicit both in the code and there's, there's an editor's code book. But where you're dealing with a newspaper, there's a very important case. Now the current judge in charge of the, the what, what we now call the media and communications list, a chap called Matthew Nicklin. I've known Matthew for 30 years. It makes me feel very old. I used to instruct him when he was a junior <laughs> Now he's a senior judge. Now Matthew recently stamped his foot. Matthew always had pretty good, strong foot stamping um, ability and warned those who were being published about two things. He said, firstly, people may need to, need to be given a reasonable deadline with, 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 in which, which to respond. And secondly, they need a proper amount of information to know what they're being asked to respond to. Now, one of the reasons why you should always get a journalist to go down in writing is so that you've got that. So if it comes back and it's hopelessly vague, you write politely back and ask for more detail. Now, recently I did that where it took me two goes to get out of the journalist what exactly they were going to say. Again, it was polite, but eventually it became clear what they were going to say. And in fact, once I knew what we were going to say, I explained why it was wrong and the story disappeared. So far as the Ofcom code is, is concerned, the, the, the fairness section is section seven and sec subsection one one of section seven requires broadcasters when they're saying something adverse, I'll, I'll use my language while what they say, to give reasonable notice. Now that's taken very seriously uh, by, by the broadcasters. And let me give you an instance of how I once deployed that. Oh. So uh, one of my clients was a very high profile e-lender. The television programs that I normally deal with are Watchdog, Panorama and Dispatches. So my client is an e-lender and late on a Tuesday afternoon, we got uh, an email in from the, the comms folk, got an email in from Watchdog saying we were going to that we're going to make this serious allegation about a, a regulation failure. Yeah. So that I knew was in the context of Watchdog going out only 24 hours later. Now, it was qu quite a complex issue, but I, I know that 24 hours is not enough. Why? Because I've done TV work for 30 years. I know that won't do. So I wrote back to Watchdog and said, thanks ever so much for giving a notice of this. We'll, of course, look into it and we will get a response to it, to, back to you, but not within the time you've given us because that is too short. And Section 711 of the Ofcom Code says that it's too short. A watchdog wrote back, accepting that it was dropped for the program. By the following week, the agenda had moved on, never revisited, and the story was dropped. So that is how you can properly deploy uh, the Ofcom code to achieve something which, which was in, impossible to achieve any other way, and particularly impossible to achieve via legal means because I'd never have got an injunction for, for legal reasons I won't bore you with. Yeah, a lot that PR people can can take from it is that the be polite and, and you know politely push back and say, we're going to take a look into this um, and we'll come back to you on the timings. But it might take us a little bit of time. And this is, as a result, we will give you regular updates every two, every four hours. As long as you are giving that regular flow of information, I think you're going to have a a fruitful relationship with the audience that you want to meet and whether it be those journalists or 
the concerned people in the in the community it's just knowing that you are the trusted verified source of the information and the facts and you're doing all you can to be that source as quickly as you can i, th I think i think I, I completely agree but the only thing i would add is this is that in any situation in any crisis let's let's take the alton towers one which, which you know was an absolute tragedy what i think you should you, you should be doing two things one you should be using top PR pros, you know, like, like Rostrum, um, who, whose expertise are essential in these circumstances. Obviously, they won't be the spokesperson, but they will be helping with the, with the messaging. And, and it's really important to call in expertise in those circumstances. But what can happen is that, that there is such fascination with the case that, you know, you've got editors running around saying, I need copy, I need copy, I need copy. That produces the temptation for, for journalists, God forbid, you know, to make things up. <laughs> now, now, you and I know how rare, says he, that is. But in all seriousness, you know, all get the wrong end, you know, misunderstand something or see something on the social media which is completely wrong or whatever. So, he, so in those circumstances, absolutely, someone who's properly trained, and I'm sure you agree with, with that, someone who's, who's trained, if they're going to speak for for the um, for the company, should be there. They should be taking top minute by minute advice. Yeah. But also, at you know, in a, in a top firm like Rostrum, they'll have the resources to be checking what else is going on out there and where stories are emerging which are wrong, and they tend to be either what I call awfulization and exaggeration. So one of the things I did, uh, one of the jobs I did was the talk talk data, data leak. You need to be alive to the risk that uh, out of the true elements of the story will come elements either which are awfulization, exaggerates the problem, or equally um, dangerous, wrongly attributes blame. Uh, now it may be that they're completely wrong about whose fault it is. But the reason why that needs to be addressed very quickly is, is as you also know, you know, if it turns up on the Mail Online website, within about you know, 20 minutes, it's on at least a dozen other news websites. And before you know, it's set in stone. So you've really got to move quickly if it's wrong. So, I mean, I've got something down from a Mail Online website within 20 minutes of being instructed. And it was a story which was catastrophically bad. But again, forgive me also if I sound self-interested or like a crap record, but there's no way you're going to get anything. The only species on this planet, really, which is going to get something down quickly from a mail online website is a media lawyer, because they're going to be able to push the right buttons and be perceived as knowing where those buttons are. Uh, because as you, you and I also know, I mean, these kind of adverse stories, which may be spun out of true stories, can quickly become the main story and can quickly become incredibly destructive and can quickly turn a, a drama into a real PR crisis. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that is a, that is a great way to, to bring our conversation to, to a close. I've just got one final question to ask you, and it's something we've, we've already touched upon. But what are there any steps that you would recommend for any organisations or individuals of ways that they can kind of mitigate and minimise 
their risk and exposure to those you know negative reputational issues i know it's very very broad um but i think we've touched on quite a few things already no it's a really good question grant and you know one thing is that a good pr person should be doing is is as an audit if you take on a, a new client you should be having a look at their business and trying to spot where the where the problems like, like likely to be uh, from uh, to me i answer it in two ways firstly having done this for 30 years, I can tell you that it's, and it's no surprise, that for companies that run their business ethically, that are courteous to their clients, courteous to their staff, and are ethical in the way that they trade, strangely enough, tend to suffer less PR disasters than those who have a cupboard so full of skeletons, they're struggling to get out. So my first advice is that Ethical business is good business. The second piece of advice really is is practical. It's essential. I cannot tell you how essential it is to be ready to rock when these problems arise. It's not the time to start putting together a team, not the time to start looking for good heavyweight PR or looking for a good PR lawyer. All of those need to be in place. You need to have your externals in place. So you need a top PR company all ready to go. And I think you need a top PR lawyer as well. Both of those need to be in place. And the two will ideally be working together. But also internally, your decision-making process needs to be as streamlined as possible. And ideally, the decision is made by one. Practically speaking, it won't be one. It'll be two. It's being fleet of foot. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's something uh, that I discuss as part of my you know, reputation management advice to, to clients is having that audit in place and saying in your normal day to day, let's say to sign off a press release, it will be two days or two hours, whatever it may be. Everything needs to be shortened. If it was two days, it can't be two days for a crisis situation. So as long as you let people know that and say in a crisis situation, you need to approve this in 15 minutes and to get that approval before any crisis happens, then everyone in the business is aware of exactly what they need to do when they need to do it and their responsibilities. Um, So I think this has been a fantastic conversation. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Grant. Thanks ever so much. God bless. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Managing Reputational Risk, the Rostrum Agency podcast. My thanks again to Jonathan Code and see you again soon for another episode. This is a Rostrum Agency production, produced, mixed and edited by Rostrum. Rostrum is a full-service communications agency offering PR, content and influencer marketing, social media, training, design and much more. Rostrum is among the UK's top five B2B agencies and a PR Week top 100 agency specialising in financial services, professional services, consumer and corporate campaigns, as well as crisis management, content marketing and social media. Rostrum creates campaigns and content to help clients punch above their weight. Rostrum measures everything it does, delivering exceptional value for clients' budgets. To find out more, search rostrum.agency.